Master Hakuin's chant and praise of Zazen. From the very beginning all beings are Buddha. Like water and ice, without water no ice, outside us no Buddhas. How near the truth, yet how far we seek. Like one in water crying, I thirst. Like a child of rich birth, wandering poor on this earth. We endlessly circle the six worlds. The cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. From dark path to dark path we wandered in darkness. How can we be free from birth and death? The gateway to freedom is Zazen Samadhi. Beyond exaltation, beyond all our praises, the pure Mahayana. Upholding the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living all come from Zazen. Thus one true Samadhi extinguishes evils. It purifies karma, dissolving obstructions. Then where are the dark paths to lead us astray? The pure lotus land is not far away. Hearing this truth, heart humble and grateful, to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom, brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit. And when we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self, we go beyond ego and pass clever words. Then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Not two and not three, right straight ahead runs the way. Our form now being no form and going and returning we never leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. How vast is the heaven of boundless samadhi. How bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom. What is there outside us? What is there we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land and this very body, the body of Buddha. Today is Tuesday the 23rd of November 2021 and this is, a, is the second in um, a series of three talks um, on cultivating right attitudes for practice in life. We started uh, last time with contentment and we're going to continue with that now and then also look at interest. The, um, the sort of trio of, of um, right attitudes uh, after contentment uh, in this formulation that we, we're looking at from um, Guogu are uh, confidence, interest and determination. And they're, um, I think, I'm guessing, reformulations of um, the old... Um, Zen motto um, that the three things one needs in practice is great faith, great doubt, and great determination. So great faith uh, corresponds with confidence, great doubt with interest, and great determination remains the same. 
Oh, it's, uh, without the grate in front of it. I think what these reformulations help us with is um, uh, making these these um, helpful attitudes for our Zen practice in our lives more accessible. Um, we can maybe be um, put off by great faith, great doubt, and great determination because they can seem pretty heroic and perhaps um, not reachable by all of us. But confidence, interest, determination, human qualities, human um, ways of being which sound do sound more, more doable. And I think we'll find there's lots that's very accessible in um, Guagu's teaching. We were looking um, in the first talk at, at contentment, uh, particularly as an antidote to uh, restlessness, which is one of the um, listed as one of the five hindrances or obstacles, barriers to awakening. Traditionally, contentment is, tends in Zen to be um, flipped into the negative as, as non-grasping, which can be a bit, again, a bit inaccessible or dry or abstract. Um, the sixth ancestor, Hui Nung, um, offered um, three principles that can act as uh, as antidotes to our grasping. And the, the three are no thought, no form, and non-abiding. These, these um, we're going to explore these three. Um, you can understand them as uh, no thought, as um, helping us to overcome our grasping in, in, in our inner world, our thoughts, our emotions, habits of mind. Then no form, um, helping us to uh, let go of our grasping of, our, of things around us outer relations, people, situations. And the final one, non-abiding, helping us not to grasp it at a, at a fixed sense of identity. Of course, of course, the three are also interrelated, and we'll get into a little bit of this in, in our text. So now turning to the same text we were using last time, um, Author is Guo Gu, as a um, Dharma heir of uh, Master Sheng Yin, and the book is called Silent Illumination A Chan Buddhist Path to Natural Awakening. He says, In order to appreciate these three principles, we need to recognize grasping as a deep-seated feeling tone. It's a sense of lack, a thirst for something, 
Of course, being discontented can bring about change for the better in our lives. But here I'm referring to a habit of possessiveness, which arises from self-grasping. It can be possessiveness or its opposite, uh, disowning something, rejecting something. In other words, the, the two sides of, of um, our, our thirst, both attraction and aversion. And he quotes Wainan, sixth ancestor. Good friends, since the past, this teaching of ours has first taken no thought as its principle, no form as its essence, and non-abiding as its foundation. No thought means to be without thought in the midst of thinking. No form is to transcend form within the context of forms and appearances. Non-abiding is your fundamental nature. All worldly things are empty. Just to say something about um, this feeling tone um, coinage that, that um, Guogu has here. Um, as I said last time, we, we tend to use feeling tone in a different way to, to represent the three, the three basic feelings of pleasant, things that are pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. But, but Guogu uses it a little bit differently. I think he, it's, it's helpful in the sense of um, how we can have a, a kind of coloration to our attitude, uh, a tone that we may not be entirely conscious of, It, it, they, it acts at a kind of an emotional level. level. Um, we may feel it more on the level of the body rather than as um, discrete thoughts. There are thoughts there behind it, but we may feel it in our throat or our shoulders, our chest, our brow, our back. This is Gwagu continuing. Thoughts, feelings and narratives are what we grasp internally. Form is what we grasp externally. And this can, can, can include our bodies, objects, environment, status, wealth and appearances. None of these objects of grasping are in and of themselves bad. Sometimes they are needed to help us navigate through life and improve our circumstances. However, when our grasping is driven by possessiveness and obsession, it brings about suffering for ourselves and others. Non-abiding is just a chan way of saying non-grasping. Everything is fluid, changing, open to opportunities. This is how things, including ourselves, are. Nothing is fixed or rigid. How can anything be grasped? So again, the two sides of grasping, um, attaching to, holding on to, also rejection, pushing away. Grasping and rejecting are always based on our self-referential obsessions. If we are captivated or repulsed by whatever comes up in our practice, then it gains power over us 
and the problem becomes worse. When difficulties arise, it is important to see them clearly, accept them, work with them, and let them go. The true nature of things is non-abiding, fresh and dynamic. Relating to our feelings and thoughts through grasping and rejecting ruins everything. If we grasp at them, then we're going, to, then we're going against their nature. We suffer and probably cause everyone around us to suffer. When we grasp and reject, we're ultimately concerned with me, I and my. We're thinking self-referentially. And very often we're seeking, we're seeking control with our grasping. A sense of, of um, some kind of stability or, or security. The opposite of thinking, grasping and abiding is contentment and it's the most important of all the attributes to cultivate in order to see our inner experiences and our outer relations as our true nature. To see what we experience as our true nature, not that we have to get away somehow or be in some other space, but but to appreciate what is right here in front of us. And this is the message of Zen again and again and again. The truth is right here where we are. And then he goes on to um, look at these three, no thought, no form and non-abiding, um, one by one. First, no thought. How do we relate to our inner experience? In the above Platform Sutra passage, it's the passage by Huaynang. No thought does not mean cutting off thinking. It means there is no fixation with regard to the free flow of our thinking. We don't need to reify or solidify what we experience into my thoughts, my feelings. If self-grasping is present, then thoughts don't flow. When we suffer, we are caught in the middle of the stories that we're fabricating, and in this way, we prolong uh, that suffering. He says, we don't need to reify or solidify what we experience into my thoughts, my feelings. Actually, we're often in error when we do that. Our thoughts are often actually not our thoughts, in the sense that there's something we may have read or heard somewhere. And, and my feelings aren't necessarily my feelings, but they can be conditioned by our cultural context. Our likes and dislikes can be uh, culturally determined. There was this story on this about that uh, that Roshi Kaplow used to tell um, about when he was in training in Japan, and um, he went somewhere with uh, Harada Roshi, and they saw a, a GI, an American serviceman, off duty, 
and this this guy was um, wearing a red tie, and uh, Harada Roshi was um, shocked by to see this big um, masculine guy wearing a red tie because in Japan the color red is is very closely associated with femininity. says we're caught up in the middle of the stories that we're fabricating and always we're, we're the central character in the drama this is um, how these stories become so skewed because life is not all about us in a limited sense he goes on Ordinarily, our happiness is completely dependent on thoughts, narratives, concepts and words. So if we have negative, self-disparaging thoughts and we automatically identify with them, then we, won't, we, then we will feel very unhappy. If someone praises us and we identify with that, then we will feel very happy. This is quite normal. Unfortunately, when we're tethered to our thoughts, we actually lose our autonomy. Like a puppet, we are tied up by the strings of our thoughts, completely at the mercy of our narratives. The problem is not with thoughts. The problem is the strings that tie us to those thoughts, our grasping and rejecting. The problem is the strings that tie us to those thoughts, our grasping and rejecting. Um, this is where the importance of contentment comes in, in um, helping us to, to not get stuck in our grasping and rejecting. I turned to, for, to um, the teaching of Ajahn Sumedho, another um, Thai forest tradition teacher. Um, this is from his collected works. This volume is called Peace is a Simple Step. And he also talks about contentment. And he talks about it particularly in relation to the, um, the Second Noble Truth. The cause of our sorrow is, is um, thirst. Th three types of, of, of thirst or attachment to desire. Uh, karma tanha, bhava tanha, and vibhava tanha. This um, attachment to or desire for sensory stimulation, for becoming, and for annihilation. These three kinds of desire. And here's what he, he says. Grasping is suffering, is the heading. Usually we equate suffering with feeling, but feeling is not suffering. It is the grasping of desire that is suffering. Desire does not cause suffering. 
the cause of suffering is the grasping of desire. This statement is for reflection and contemplation in terms of your individual experience. He goes on a bit later. When you really see the origin of suffering, you realize that the problem is the grasping of desire, not the desire itself. Grasping means being deluded by it, thinking it's really me and mine. These diet desires are me and there's something wrong with me for having them. Or, I don't like the way I am now, I have, become something, I have to become something else. Or, I have to get rid of something before I can become what I want to be. That's a, that's a very common one, I think, in Zen. All this is desire. So you listen to it with bare attention, not saying it's good or bad, but merely recognizing it for what it is. If we contemplate desires and listen to them, we are actually no longer attaching to them. We are just f allowing them to be the way they are. Then we come to the realization that the origin of suffering can be laid aside and let go of. How do you let go of things? This means you leave them as they are. It does not mean you annihilate them or throw them away. It is more like setting them down and letting them be. Through the practice of letting go, we realize that there is an origin of suffering, which is the attachment to desire. And we realize that we should let go of these three kinds of desire. This is kamatana, bhavatana, and vibhavatana. Then we realize that we have to let go of these desires. There is, when we realize that we have to let go of these desires, there is no longer any attachment to them. When you find yourself attached, remember that letting go is not getting rid of or throwing away. If I'm holding onto this clock and you say, let go of it, that doesn't mean throw it out. I might think that I have to throw it away because I'm attached to it, but that would be just the desire to get rid of it. We tend to think that getting rid of the object is the way of getting rid of the attachment. But if I can contemplate attachment, this grasping of the clock, I realize that there is no point in getting rid of it. It's a good clock. It keeps good time and it's not heavy to carry around. The clock is not the problem. The problem is grasping the clock. So what do I do? Let it go. Lay it aside. Put it down gently without any kind of aversion. Then I can pick it up again, see what time it is, and lay it aside when necessary. Back to Kuo on on not grasping or rejecting our thoughts. Here, thought has two levels of meaning. The first refers to our mental activity, our brain's natural ability to think, symbolize, conceptualize, cognize and perceive. The second level refers to our fixation on our own constructs, notions and storylines. In other words, our tendency to reify ideas and feelings into discrete realities, into things. There is no problem with our natural ability to think, imagine and so on. 
The problem is when I start to solidify our thoughts and feelings into fixed notions of me, I and mine. When, when everything resolves around me, my and mine, then we set ourselves up for pain, suffering. In uh, Vajrayana Buddhism, there's the, these um, things we attach to and reject are, are um, listed in four pairs. These are the, they're known sometimes as the eight worldly winds, the things that, that sway us in different ways. Pain and pleasure, gain and loss, blame and praise, fame and ill repute. If, if we are rattled by any of these, then it's a good sign that we have uh, work to do in our practice. To practice contentment, we have to first expose our sense of lack or our need to possess something. Don't identify with these subtle feeling tones. At the same time, don't block them either. There are reasons why we feel and think the way we do. Our thoughts and feelings reveal something about us. Recognizing them as they arise and not grasping or rejecting them is itself a way to own and embrace them. When we can allow ourselves to be with them, we can start to work with them, to work through them and to let go of them, which means they no longer have a strong hold over us. We generally, genuine, generally believe that the way we think about ourselves is how we actually are. We cannot distinguish between our thoughts and the reality of who we are. Moreover, we tend to treat ourselves according to whatever subtle feelings we happen to have at the moment. If we're feeling negative, we don't see anything good about ourselves. We're in a good mood, even a shortcoming is adorable. This is um, uh, something we have to learn over and over again, not to, um, not to be misled by our thoughts into thinking that that we're actually how they they think we are there's there's a term for this in in um, act a form of therapy acceptance and commitment therapy and the 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 term they use for this um, identification with our thoughts is fusion our thought and who we who we believe ourselves to be become fused there's no space there. Hongzhi, the great um, teacher of silent illumination, he talks about us uh, taking a backward step. Stepping back from our thoughts so that we can see them as um, the play of our mind. See them against against a backdrop, rather than being just completely caught up in them, identified with them. 
talking about this this tendency to to feel good um, about ourselves when we're in a good mood and and tell very um, damning narratives about ourselves when we're in a bad mood. He says this projection happens so quickly that we don't usually recognize it. But this subtle feeling is what the passage above calls thought. So when you feel something within, recognize it, but don't reify, identify, or solidify it into a thing. Definitely don't build a whole narrative around it. This is the meaning of practicing no thought amid thoughts. It's learning to have a healthier relationship with our thoughts instead of being conditioned by them. We can, do, we can also do this with experiences we have in our practice. Um, we have maybe have some powerful experience which we then, then um, try to re reproduce or um, allow to continue so that we don't, don't want to um, let go of it. But all the, all the um, experiences we have our practice come and go. It's one of the the, the paradoxes of, of taking up spiritual training and practice that um, we can turn the very thing that, that is to free us from our narratives into a thing. We turn awakening into something that we long to acquire. Uh, Chogyam Trimpa coined the term spiritual materialism for this. The free flow of our minds is the wonderful dynamic activity of our creativity and intellect. There's no need to stop thoughts. At the same time, it is necessary to develop the ability to be free from thoughts. That's an important point. How do we do that? Well, the, the central practice is Azazen. Where we, have, where we sit still so we have a chance to see what's going on. And by focusing on, on one thing, then we, this, the thoughts can settle. And moving on now to no form. No form is a teaching on how to relate to the external world. Ordinarily, we grasp appearances and characteristics as discrete things. But there's not really a single thing. Nothing is fixed. There is no fixed objective reality. To transcend form within the context of forms is a teaching on not denying or divorcing ourselves from form, but allowing all appearances and characteristics to be without us contaminating them with our projections, ideas or feelings. Just to give an example, say, say you were somebody who had um, a very controlling mother 
and then you tend subsequently uh, whenever you uh, encounter a woman within a position of authority then you experience her as a tyrant and we can we can do this over and over again as we're projecting of our own filters or or lenses that we, we experience things through. So to and again it's in Azazen when we're sitting still that we may get some inkling of this or we may get it directly in feedback from others so that we start to be aware of the projections that we engage in. He says we must engage with the world while at the same time we have no vexations about it. When there's room for improvement we try our best to improve the world of form. When things need to change, we make the change. But emotional afflictions only lead to more vexations. They can contaminate and even ruin everything we see, hear, smell, taste and touch. How do we contaminate forms and appearances? We defile them by attaching to them, reifying them as things out there. When we make everything into a thing, everything we touch can become a problem. For example, I have a student who makes a big deal out of everything. Every task she takes on, however small, she makes into a thing, and it's always a struggle, always complicated, because she overthinks things. I have another student, for him everything he encounters is not a big deal, yet because he feels it is not a big deal, all sorts of unexpected things come up, and he makes mistakes. You could say that he's underthinking. Oh, this will be a breeze. This will be easy. Still, it doesn't really bother him, but both attitudes are problematic. Both follow their own ideas about things out there. Both have contaminated the form with their own habit tendencies. This is not the meaning of no form. Engage with forms and appearances, do what is appropriate, but without grasping onto a fixed way of doing things. No form also applies to meditation practice. The Platform Sutra states, Good friends, what is meditative concentration? And the, that is Chan Ding in Chinese. Externally to transcend characteristics is meditation, or Chan. Internally to be undisturbed is called concentration, or Ding. This is a f another famous statement by Sixth ancestor Hui Nung. To externally to transcend characteristics, not to be disturbed by uh, conditions, external conditions. Having to sit in, uh, with a, a noisy road right, right by you, or um, when it gets very hot or very cold. Externally, to transcend characteristics. 
is meditation. Internally to be undisturbed it is called concentration. So whatever comes up in our mind to see the thoughts as thoughts, the feelings as feelings, the parade, not to be disturbed. Not to panic when we uh, tell ourselves that we've been sitting X number of years, we shouldn't be feeling this way, surely. This passage says that meditation means to not be externally swayed by causes and conditions and not to be internally disturbed by our own thoughts and feelings. But to do this, we have to first become aware of what's going on inside us, how we're projecting our own standards, ideals and expectations onto the world of form. So no thought is intimately connected to no form. How we feel inside is how we relate to others outside. We externalize our internal habits. One of the most common forms of conditioning in meditation is to fall asleep when we relax. Trying to be clear, we tense up and give rise to wandering thoughts. This, this is an important thing to understand, that um, if we have got a lot of, of um, wandering thoughts, distractions, we may be um, too tense and need to actually relax rather than to try harder at that point. To practice no form in terms of seated meditation means to stay relaxed but wakeful, clear but without wandering thoughts. Whether in daily life or in meditation, the world of form operates through causes and conditions. All appearances are fluid. How then do we work with the changing appearances of form? How do we live in the world of causes and conditions? What about injustice, discrimination, wrongdoing? Of course the wrongs of the world must be corrected. Each thing is exactly how it's supposed to be through the workings of causes and conditions. You might hear these two sentences and think that they're, they're um, diametrically opposed. But I think what he means in this second sentence each thing is it exactly how it's supposed to be through the workings of causes and conditions. I think what he's trying to say is that once something has happened, you can't argue with it. You don't have to like it or approve of it. But we can be sure that if something comes into existence, if something happens, it does so because of causes and conditions, the working of causes and conditions. And so therefore, we, at that point, if we want to make change, we have to ask, what? What caused this? What are the conditions that support it to exist? And, and work from there. He continues, this means we need to engage with causes and conditions if we are to better the world. Causes and conditions are about relationships. In working with various relationships, we have to recognize, adapt, wait, and create the right causes and conditions for change. Otherwise, emotional afflictions will follow our every move. 
again a, an important point to to change things means to um, engage in relationships it's not all on us it's it involves our working with others if we don't if we don't see this, then uh, we're likely to cause ourselves and others a lot of heartache. Working with causes and conditions includes relating to people. If we want peace and harmony, we must recognize or expose our discriminations. For example, if you interact with people different from you and become vexed, then that's the indicator that you're attached to some kind of form. In our own discrimination and xenophobia, whether conscious or not, we assume that our perception of the world and of people is the standard of truth. Believing that certain people are different from us, we shun them, yet evidence shows that it is precisely when we have more interactions across diverse groups of people that we have more ideas, more productivity, and more tolerance. This is um, an important point he's making here about our um, xenophobia and prejudice, which we can, um, if, at least for uh, Privileged people from privileged racial groups or, or um, socioeconomic groups, we often don't have to be all that aware of our prejudices. We can get by sort of un with unconsciously continuing them, a different subtle kinds of xenophobia and discrimination. And that it, it, takes, it takes work and a lot of honesty and courage to really... Um, look into how we might be seeing th things through a particular filter due to our own conditioning. And that our way of seeing the world is not some kind of standard of truth. It's a view, a conditioned view with limits and distortions built into it. To recognize, adapt, wait, and create the right causes and conditions is practice. There's no room for self-centeredness. We have to recognize the workings of causes and conditions, adapt and wait for the opportunities, and create the right conditions for change. The right timing is also important. Change occurs with time. Sometimes only the right person or people can cause changes. I think he's talking here about a kind of um, pragmatic approach, pragma pragmatic actions, knowing or, or sensing when to act and when to wait.
the platform sutra's phrase to transcend form within the context of forms can be applied to our own life and to our socio-political life. We have to recognize, to adapt, to wait, and to create the conditions of our lives. In this process, if we attach to our own ideas, whether we're pro-change or pro-status quo, the outcome may be more divisiveness. But if we make our socio-political life part of our practice, free up our ideological fixations, recognize and work with causes and conditions, we learn to be free amid the myriad forms. Free up our ideological fixations. Put ourselves where we can into the shoes of people who have had different causes and conditions shape them. Enter into dialogue. We learn to be free amid the myriad of forms. To be free. There's a lot of talk about freedom bandied around at the moment with the debate around vaccinations. There are different ways of, of talking about freedom. There is, of course, uh, freedom to do things, to do what we want. Um, often this, this, this demand for this kind of freedom is, is backed up with strong um, individualism. This is uh, a motivation for some people in refusing the vaccine. It's not. It's, it's generally not harmful, there, though there are exceptions to that. But there can be this strong uh, re reaction to being told to have it, to have the vaccine. I think in Buddhism and practice we focus more on not so much on freedom to do what we want, but on freedom from our fixations. Freedom from, the, from, from acting out of the three poisons, greed, hatred and delusion, which inevitably cause suffering. Finally, a little bit about um, non-abiding. I don't think we're going to get to interest with the amount of time that's that's left. But let's just look a little bit look at non-abiding a little bit. He says non-abiding is relating to ourselves and others in an open and receptive way, where we allow everything to flow and recognize that each moment is alive, vibrant, filled with infinite possibilities. This is actually the nature of experiencing the workings of Buddha nature and the direct expression of natural awakening. For this reason, non-abiding is your fundamental nature, as Huaynang said. It is who we are, free from the internal shackles of thoughts and feelings and the external conditioning of form. Of course, Huaynang's first 
Kinsho experience came from hearing somebody recite the Diamond Sutra when he was um, delivering firewood, which was his occupation at the time. And he heard that the line from the Diamond Sutra arouse the mind without its abiding anywhere. At that point he, he had a, a Kensho experience. That's who we are, non-abiding. The teaching of Buddhism is that that's where we find, paradoxically, that we find our, our security in going along with that non-abiding, diving into it, diving into change. continues, we want things to say the same because it gives us a sense of security and control, but nothing stays the same. When we embrace change, we become vulnerable, and this vulnerability is true courage. There is strength in being okay with a loss of control, with unpredictability and potential loss. In truth, nothing can break us. We as humans are so resilient. It is only when we try to control and to hold on to things that we feel broken. The reverse is also true. When we experience loss, we desperately try to control. This is because deep inside we feel broken, so we try to fix ourselves. We resist how things really are. But if we embrace our vulnerability, tap into who we truly are, and align with non-abiding, Whatever difficulties we face will eventually be integrated within us and will be resolved. And this this longing for for a sense of control and security may also be what is behind um, people's uh, believing and and passing on conspiracy theories. This is happening so much at the moment. How do we cultivate non-abiding? By having the courage to be vulnerable, by engaging with ourselves and the world without fighting everything. There's always going to be opposition when we fixate on ideas about me, I and mine. But when we can respond to the world without injecting a sense of self into our decisions, views and endeavours. This means our own ideas about gain and loss benefit and harm, do not block our decisions and experiences. Instead, we consider what is needed depending on the circumstances. The difficulties we face in life are indicators of where we are stuck. We must allow ourselves to be open to our underlying feelings and allow them to come through without judging ourselves. Then we can be content and relax our grasping tendencies. We are then able to face causes and conditions and work with them. In non-opposition and openness, everything eventually works out within us. We have to cultivate an attitude of contentment, of harmonizing our feelings, and both of these in combination with the three teachings above from the platform scripture. When we do this, our hearts and minds will be open and integrated. We'll stop here and recite the four vows.
without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain. be uh, switching over to Zoom in five minutes or so for a uh, catch-up and um, the next sitting to be streamed is tomorrow morning at 6, informal sitting from 6 to 7. <laughs>